This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Most of us depend on the Internet today in one way or another. But the web is a lot more fragile than we once thought. Our first warning came back during the Y2K crisis. This week, the fifth anniversary of Y2K, Marketplace and American Radio Works are looking at the history and the legacy of the Millennium Bug. Catherine Winter reports the Millennium Bug was a problem we could fix, but the next threats may not be. Nearly a century ago, E.M. Forster wrote a dark science fiction story called The Machine Stops. In the story, people live underground in separate chambers and communicate using electric screens. They depend on a system called the machine for everything, even air. When the machine breaks down, everyone dies. What was wild fancy in 1909 seemed weirdly prescient five years ago when we faced the Y2K bug. This was really the first realization that our technology had escaped our ability to really understand it. Michael Mandel is chief economist for Businessweek. Nobody knew the size of the potential problem. What's comparable today is that nobody knows quite how much of a disaster you could sort of develop if you had some sort of negative Internet cascade where the Internet really went down. Nobody really knows how much of this would be affected negatively and how much would keep going. Y2K showed how dependent we are on an interconnected system that spans the globe. Paul Sappho directs the Institute for the Future in Menlo Park. He says since Y2K, the computer network has only become more complex. We are more vulnerable than ever. The more sophisticated the technology becomes, the easier it is for it to fail in unexpected ways and the bigger the consequences. Every computer that connects to the network is a potential entry point for viruses, or worse. President Clinton's Y2K czar, John Koskinen, worries about cyber terrorism. The way to shut down the power system in the United States is not to bomb anything. It's actually to uh, hack into all of the computer controls and shut it down that way. Koskinen thinks back to 1998. A satellite went down, and most of the nation's pagers went silent. And he points to the massive power outage on the East Coast in 2003. He says these kinds of random problems are harder to anticipate than Y2K was. My view of uh, this was that we ought to treat Y2K as the first attack on the infrastructure. Different than terrorism, we knew at the time. Uh, Different in the sense that we knew exactly what the problem was. We knew when it would happen. So it was simpler. The problem with more malicious attacks is there's no way to know when or where they'll strike. Businesses and government are working to protect themselves, but they're in a high-tech race against fast-moving opponents. IT experts say as the network gets bigger and more complex, it faces a rapidly increasing number of attacks, and the attacks get ever more sophisticated. They say it's important for businesses to have disaster recovery plans, and many businesses do, plans they developed to get ready for Y2K. For Marketplace and American Radio Works, I'm Catherine Winter. And in Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Thanks for being with us. This is Marketplace. I'm David Brown. Where were you on the morning of January 1st, 2000? Locked up in your concrete bunker counting your provisions? Perhaps your preparations were more modest, squirreling away some extra cash just in case the ATMs failed the next day. Then again, maybe you thought it was overblown all along. Today, most will tell you that the Y2K bug did not bite, as so many had feared. Just an empty bit of hysteria, maybe even a hoax. Or maybe not. Today, reporter Catherine Winter of American Radio Works brings us the first installment in a Marketplace special report on the history and the legacy of the Millennium Bug. Mass destruction, plagues and famine. 
It's probably been a while since you heard a Y2K song, but there were a lot of them in the late 90s. Y2K inspired songs and novels and disaster movies. There was even a Y2K cookbook with recipes for all that freeze-dried food you might have stockpiled. Now they're historical curiosities on eBay. But in the 1990s, Y2K was on everyone's mind. From ABC News. News shows talked about the threat of a major computer malfunction that might hit in the year 2000. Surf through the internet these days and you keep coming across a strange new word, Toyota Walkie. The word stands for the end of the world as we know it. And it refers to the effects of a tiny, seemingly innocuous computer glitch. A tiny glitch a lot of people say could literally blow the lights out on civilization. The glitch was this. In the early days of programming, computer code used two-digit numbers for dates, like 70 for 1970. That let computers work faster. No one thought the software would still be in use decades later, but it was. As the year 2000 approached, programmers started warning that computers could misread the 00 as the year 1900. That might cause breakdowns. No one knew how widespread computer malfunctions might be, but people started thinking about all the things that are run by computers. Things like hospital equipment, air traffic control, nuclear weapons. Could this be God's way to bring revival to America? I wonder if this wealthy, affluent, booming nation will find itself on its knees in an instant. Some Christians saw the Y2K bug as a fulfillment of biblical prophecies about the end of the world. Televangelist Jerry Falwell released a video called A Christian's Guide to the Millennium Bug. Stop and think about it. When water, food, electricity, gas, oil, money, none of them are available and nowhere to get them. The people who have those things will be in mortal danger of attack from those who don't have them. Gun sales spiked. Doomsayers hawked things like gas masks and radiation kits. Worried people stashed batteries and food. The Federal Reserve pumped an extra $50 billion in cash into circulation in case people withdrew their savings. The U.S. government spent nearly $9 billion to fix its computers. Businesses spent many times more. All told, businesses and government spent more than $100 billion to fix software. And then, Friday night turned to Saturday morning, and the apocalypse was a no-show. So what happened? Were we sold a bill of goods by people who could make a buck hyping Y2K? Was all the money we spent really necessary? This was not hype. It was not software consultants trying to create a full employment act for themselves. Paul Sappho directs the Institute for the Future in Menlo Park. In the 90s, he worked to persuade businesses that they would have to do something about the Y2K bug. This really could have screwed up our lives, and, um, you know, a whole bunch of little geeks saved us. Sappho says some businesses underreacted to the problem at first and then spent more money than they should have scrambling to fix their software. But it did have to be fixed. Before Y2K hit, many businesses ran tests. They advanced their computer clocks to 2000, and the computers didn't work. One of the programmers who worked on the fix was David Eddy. He's widely regarded as the guy who coined the term Y2K. Eddy is still sore that people think there wasn't really a problem. I'd love to do a poll and eliminate anybody that actually worked on year 2000 work and just talk to what I would call civilians. And if you ask them, I w I'd bet you hard money that most civilians would say, oh, Y2K, whole thing was a hoax. P bodies didn't fall from the sky at the stroke of midnight. I knew the thing was a hoax. But the reason nothing bad happened was that so many people put so much hard work into it. 
Eddie would like a little gratitude for the people who raced to fix the Y2K bug. But doing a good job made them invisible. Just ask John Koskinen. He was appointed by President Clinton to oversee Y2K fixes. The only way to be a hero, I think, would be to have half the world stop and then somehow get it started again, uh, which was not one of our goals. And like a lot of things in government, if it works well, nobody cares much. Koskinen points to evidence that the fix was needed. Some computers that didn't get fixed stopped working on New Year's Day. Koskinen says some of those glitches would normally have been big news, but since people were expecting the end of the world, they didn't seem like that big a deal. Koskinen was in the Y2K nerve center in Washington that night, monitoring systems all over the world. He says the public doesn't realize how many things went wrong. The low-level wind shear detectors at every major airport go out at 7 o'clock on Friday night. The defense intelligence satellite system, the French intelligence satellite system go down. The Japanese lose the ability to monitor the operation of a couple of their nuclear plants. Uh, and come Monday, uh, there are thousands of small businesses that when you buy something with your credit card, uh, charge you every day of the week. But in the end, most major business and government computers did get fixed. In fact, so few things went wrong that after Y2K, some business people complained that the money they spent was wasted. But Businessweek chief economist Michael Mandel disagrees. He says Y2K forced businesses to make upgrades they're still using. If you look at the Y2K, you can sort of say, well, maybe we didn't have to be quite so wired up about it. But the fact is, it may have been the right thing to do from a social and economic point of view. Mandel worries that Y2K may have lured people into a false sense of security. Next time there's a big disaster looming, people may think it's just hype and ignore the warnings. But some people are still prepared for the end of the world as we know it. Ben Levi built a house in the foothills of Boulder, Colorado, designed to survive Y2K. It's a bright, airy place with three computers in the office and a fountain trickling in the living room. And if the utilities had shut down on New Year's Day, Levi could have kept the computers humming and the fountain flowing with his solar panels and his generator. I was kind of, one way I was kind of looking forward to it. <laughs> it's like, wouldn't this be fun? Because I really felt that I could meet the challenge. Levi's not a survivalist. He's a computer consultant. He believed Y2K might be a real catastrophe. But the end of the world as we know it also offered an opportunity to build a better world. We would be coming more into balance, less obsessed with technology and materialism, more living a sustainable lifestyle. The opportunity was that it would basically turn the volume down on civilization for a while. But if anything, civilization is even noisier, more interconnected, more dependent on technology. So Levi figures, who knows, a crisis could still happen, like the massive East Coast power failure in 2003. And if it does, he's still got the year's supply of dried food he stashed. For Marketplace and American Radio Works, I'm Catherine Winter. In the final part of our series about the surprising legacy of Y2K, Indian outsourcing, productivity gains, terrorism preparation and how the doomsday bug might have been the start of the world as we know it. Y2K was huge in getting the ball rolling on offshoring. But once they went overseas, they discovered it's not just a question of cost. These programmers are often better than the best you can get in the United States. That's tomorrow here on Marketplace. Let's try something here. I say Y2K. What do you think of? Chances are you're not thinking of the year 2000. You're thinking of the predictions of doom for New Year's Day 2000. The worry was a cascade of computer malfunctions caused by software that wasn't programmed to recognize the turn of the century. Well, it didn't happen. 
In the run-up to New Year's Day 2000, governments and businesses spent more than $100 billion doing fixes and inspections. Five years later, it's apparent that the economic impact of Y2K was much more than $100 billion. In the conclusion of our special series from American Radio Works, Chris Farrell reports. Remember the dot-com boom of the 1990s? It seemed everyone with a laptop and an idea could strike it rich. The demand for digital workers soared. Longtime computer professionals hopped from job to job, pulling down more money with every employer. Newly minted college graduates juggled multiple job offers. But when the Y2K computer problem emerged, business and government realized there still weren't enough IT workers on hand to find and repair the glitch. The quick fix? Hire computer professionals overseas. And that temporary solution has permanently changed the global economy. Y2K was huge in getting the ball rolling on offshoring. Paul Safa is director of the Institute for the Future, a high-tech think tank in Silicon Valley. But once they went overseas, they discovered it's not just a question of cost. These programmers overseas are often better than the best you can get in the United States. India became the offshore capital. While other countries also had well-educated, English-speaking tech workers, India's programmers had an odd advantage. Import barriers in the 80s meant Indian tech workers learned on old machines. So they were experts in the old programming languages they needed to know to fix Y2K. Annalise Saxanian of the University of California, Berkeley, is an expert in high-tech entrepreneurship. I think that the importance of Y2K was overwhelmingly about establishing Indian companies' reputation among U.S. customers and helping begin a set of customer-supplier relationships that have simply taken off in the last four years. Of course, Y2K contracts ended in 2000. Yet many Indian companies took advantage of their now sterling programming reputations to negotiate for more sophisticated work. Rafiq Dasani is a senior research scholar at Stanford University. India is now growing at 70-80% a year in uh, offshore services. Services which are maintaining an accounting system, maintaining an HR system, doing claims processing, that's growing at easily at 70% a year, maybe even higher. Offshore also came onshore during Y2K. Cities and towns like Mountain View, California, became home to Indian workers brought over to fix the bug. Shankar Muniapa directs information systems for the Indus Entrepreneur. It's a networking base for the Indian high-tech diaspora. Many of us still believe that uh, this is the place where you need to be if you want to be in the middle of innovation. Some 30,000 Indian IT professionals now live and work in the Valley. Rafiq Dasani of Stanford University. At least 25% of the startups are... Uh, have Indian employees at fairly senior levels working for them. And there's a whole infrastructure, therefore, being built around them because it's a substantial number now. So you see shopping malls, you see business services and so on catering to this particular immigrant community. That community is adding vitality to the American economy. Still, many American high-tech workers are feeling threatened by the offshoring of white-collar jobs. The numbers are murky, but some 370,000 non-manufacturing jobs moved overseas in the past four years, with most of the IT jobs going to India. Salaries are down, too. But ask an economist what's holding back U.S. job growth, and most will say, don't look at outsourcing. Look at productivity gains. Businesses today are simply more efficient. They don't need as many workers. And those productivity gains are also in part owed to Y2K. 
economists initially looked at Y2K as a productivity killer. Imagine a town threatened by a rising river. Every able-bodied person in town is put to work stacking sandbags. It's necessary work to save the town, but it's unproductive work. Nothing gets built. No food gets grown. With the Y2K bug, programmers, chief information officers, project managers, and other digital workers were getting paid to do unproductive work. In other words, stacking sandbags of silicon. No innovative investments, no new productivity enhancing software. But economists were wrong. Y2K wasn't a flood. Think of what happened as clearing a path choked with underbrush. Once the trail is open, it's much easier to zip from point A to point B. Y2K gave companies an excuse to clean up their software and hardware underbrush. That's a critical factor in today's improved business productivity. Paul Sappho. A lot of companies said, well, gosh, if we're going to have to spend all this money to fix our software, let's also see what else we can do at the same time. So it was an invitation to replace a whole bunch of stuff. So it forced people to ask hard questions about how they were using things. And in the best instances, people really did become more efficient. The result? Companies used the new systems they installed to cut costs and work smarter and hire fewer workers. Companies made other changes while coping with Y2K. Business and government learned that disaster preparation is critical in the computer age, a lesson that helped some businesses survive 9-11. The attack on the World Trade Center stopped trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Against the odds, that citadel of capitalism opened six days later. This is Marketplace. It is tragic that this sound is news, but the return of trading on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange is big news. The cheering soon faded, and despite a big... The uh, reason the markets, securities markets, were able to open the Monday after the, the Tuesday of 9-11 was they still had the test scripts that had been developed in 1998-99. Uh, John Koskinen credits preparations for Y2K. He was President Clinton's Y2K czar. They were able to, in effect, take all of those Y2K scripts and make sure that all of the transactions with all the major players would close. Without that, they never would have been able to do it in the time frame with the confidence they had. Y2K was unique. Unlike other potential economic calamities, everyone knew when the catastrophe might strike. The surprise was how little immediate impact the much-feared millennial transition had on the economy. Yet we're still living and working with the economic impact of Y2K five years later. For Marketplace and American Radio Works, I'm Chris Farrell.